Good morning. This sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. Hear now the word of God. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed him and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you please join me in prayer? Our Father, would you be exalted in our hearts and minds this morning as we consider again the gospel of free grace for sinners. We thank you for Christ, born for us, who lived for us and died for us and lives even today. Would you accept our worship In his name, amen. Well, reading through Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, you would be excused for thinking that you've walked into a musical. Perhaps you noticed that in almost every scene in the opening chapters of Luke's gospel, someone is breaking out into song, the most obvious of which is Mary. Of course, singing the famous Magnificat, but we also hear Zechariah, the father of John, John the Baptist, singing his song known in Latin as the Benedictus, and of course, perhaps the most famous this time of year, is the song of the angels, which we just echoed, Gloria in excelsis Deo. 
I can assure you that they sang it in Aramaic and not in Latin, but they did, it sounds better in Latin. And so we sing and rehearse glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Four songs in just two chapters, we would be right to ask the question, why all this singing? Why all this singing? Well, the answer, I believe, is that throughout redemptive history, whenever God shows up to save his people, his people respond in song. Songs of praise, songs of thanksgiving, which erupt from the innermost recesses of the human heart, burst forth spontaneously in praise and thanksgiving and glory and blessing to God. Think, for example, of Israel at the time of the Exodus, 400 years, slaves in Egypt. No songs recorded for us in that time. And yet no sooner do their feet touch the far side of the Red Sea than what happens? They sing. I will sing to the Lord the song of Miriam. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Forty years in the wilderness. Scholars have pointed out that there's no songs sung in the book of Numbers. And yet in Numbers chapter 21, when Israel begins her march to the promised land, what do we read? Songs. Israel begins to sing again. We could point also to Hannah. And arguably the most uh, dark and difficult times in Israel's history, the period of the judges, this woman is visited with a remarkable pregnancy as she will bear the child Samuel, who will be a prophet and a judge for Israel. And what does Hannah do? She sings, my heart exalts in the Lord my strength. When God shows up, his people sing. And so we shouldn't be surprised, should we, that here in the midst of darkness, at the greatest turning point in history, when God shows up to save his people, we discover his people singing. The birth of Jesus, Mary, Zechariah, the angels, and here with Simeon, we hear songs bursting forth in praise, celebration, and thanksgiving to our God. Here we have before us this morning the climactic song, Simeon's song known as the Nunc Dimittis. But we may still ask the question, why a song here, now, on this day, at this time, and in this place, there was, after all, outwardly, very little about this event that marks it as particularly song-worthy. It wasn't a feast or a festival or a Sabbath. In fact, if you had been there on that day, it is not likely that you would have noticed anything particularly out of the ordinary, As any new mother can tell you, it is not at all unusual for perfect strangers to walk up and want to hold your baby, right? You moms know and have perhaps experienced this. In my experience, mothers tend to object to complete strangers taking and holding their babies, at least when it's their first or second child, when it's their... (laughs) 
third or fourth, sometimes it's a different story. But what I want you to see is that there's a perfectly obvious reason why there's a song on this day, at this time, and in this place. And that is because the glory of the Lord, the King of Israel, the hope of the nations has finally returned to his temple. When what Mary and Joseph thought was an ordinary visit to church was in fact the fulfillment of God's long-awaited promises. The temple, you'll remember, was the place that God appointed in which he would dwell with his people. God's gracious presence with his people was wonderfully and gloriously displayed in the days of King Solomon who built the first temple when the pillar of cloud and fire descended upon this temple, an outward visible manifestation of God's presence with his people. In the days of the exile, it was this presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord that the prophet Ezekiel witnessed departing from the temple as it slowly and reluctantly makes its way out of the temple and out of Jerusalem. The glory of the Lord has departed. I believe this is why when the foundation of the second temple was laid, and there was great celebration in Israel. This is why those who had seen the first temple were told in the book of Ezra, wept. Why are they weeping? Because there was something missing. The glory of the Lord. Though they had returned to the land, though they had begun rebuilding the temple, there was something missing. There was a greater deliverance to be had. There was a greater release from bondage to be experienced And it is for this reason that there began to grow in Israel a hope, a deep longing that one day God would return to his temple. As decades turned into centuries, this hope grew and grew. And the expectation was that when God returns to his temple, all of his promises would be fulfilled. The release, the deliverance, the salvation would finally be accomplished. In fact, Israel's prophets promised as much. Malachi chapter three declares, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. There will be a sudden appearance of the Lord and it will take place in his temple. Many had given up hope. But the faithful of Israel persisted. They persisted in waiting and hoping and longing for God to return. And so do you see it? What is special about this day? Here he is. God has come home. The Lord has come to his temple. Suddenly and unexpectedly, Notice that the glory of the Lord did not appear as a king or a mighty warrior, but as a baby, humble, dependent, vulnerable. Not the arrival that many in Israel had expected, but those who had eyes to see, those who had ears to hear, those who had hearts to understand, 
saw and understood the significance of this child in this temple on this day. And God would use Simeon, an unexpected herald, to draw the attention of God's people to the significance of this child. Simeon was specially prepared by the Holy Spirit for just such a day as this. Did you see it? Throughout this this passage, the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon would herald the arrival of Yahweh, the Lord, to his temple. And he highlights for us throughout this episode the significance of this child. And I want to consider the significance of this child and this temple on this day under three headings because Simeon tells us that in this Christ child what we find is a consolation, a contradiction, and a cost. A consolation, a contradiction, and a cost. First, we find a consolation. Simeon, we're told in verse 25, was righteous, devout, and waiting for the consolation of Israel. This word translated here as consolation, it could also be translated as comfort. It's the same word that's used in Isaiah chapter 40, where the prophet calls out, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, for her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort to be ex- to, to, that was expected. This is what Simeon was longing for. Now, Simeon wasn't alone in this. There was widespread agreement that Israel was looking forward to a consolation yet to be revealed. But though there was widespread agreement that there was a future consolation to be revealed, there was widespread disagreement as to how that consolation would come. The Pharisees, for example, by and large believed that consolation would come through law observance. That as God's people devoted themselves to obedience, as they fulfilled the requirements of the law, as they kept themselves pure, they would, through their observance, usher in the kingdom of God or realize the consolation of the Messiah. The zealots, another group, believed that the kingdom would be realized through force, through revolution, particularly through violence against their Roman oppressors. The Essenes, yet another group, withdrew from society, isolating themselves from the corruption of the larger culture. The Sadducees believed that consolation would come through compromise with the dominant Greco-Roman culture. Vastly different ideas about how this consolation would come to Israel. But what I want you to see is this, that what unites all of these ideas is the conviction that the consolation of Israel will be the result of something that we do. Something that we do. But in Simeon, we see another way. We're told that Simeon is waiting It's waiting for God to fulfill his promise. Waiting for God to act in his way and in his time. 
Simeon's waiting is not a passive waiting, clearly. He's described as uh, 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 devout and righteous. These are two words that speak to an integrity of character and to an obedience to God's word, an obedience that is manifest in the love of neighbors. This is far from passivity, but in all of his service, in all of his obedience, there is at heart a waiting, a longing, and a hoping that is the heart of faith. The kingdom of God, you see, for which Simeon was looking was not a kingdom that he or anyone else would build through their own strength or ingenuity. Simeon was looking forward to a kingdom that he would receive. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is not something that we build, but something we receive by faith. Then Simeon, we see, is not alone in this, but we have Anna as well, don't we? A prophetess who, her, who herself speaks in verse 38 of those who were, quote, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Simeon, Anna, many others waiting for the Lord to act. Amidst all the chaos of the day, amidst all the misunderstandings and false messiahs and political posturing, in the midst of all of it, God preserves a remnant for himself. And this remnant is characterized by faith. What Simeon announces, you see, is not a new political platform. It's not a social movement. It's not an idea or a philosophy. He is not following a mighty king or a strong army, but Simeon found in this baby, Jesus, the Christ child, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. All of Israel's hopes and expectations are centered in this baby, a child. He says in verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles for glory to your people, Israel. Do you hear God's promises in that song? It's a wonderful summary of all of God's promises made throughout the Old Testament. God's promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that through their offspring, he would bless Israel And through Israel, he would bless the nations. It's right there in Simeon's song. This is what Simeon and Anna and countless others had been waiting for and hoping for and praying for. As the Apostle Paul tells us, all of God's promises, not some of them, not most of them, all of them are yes and amen in Christ. This child is the consolation that Israel longed for. And remarkably, this child is the consolation that you and I long for as well. Where is it that we find our ultimate consolation? There is a sense in which we all want to hear those words that we speak to our children when they're anxious or they're fearful. And we say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We want to hear these words as well and we look 
around, sometimes frantically, often anxiously, to, to hear this, this message, it's going to be okay. We seek these words of comfort in illusions and distractions and all manner of false comforters, whether it be technology, social media, career, education, bank accounts, investment accounts, relationships, networks, the list could go on, couldn't it? We look to all of these things and more in order to hear those words, it's going to be okay. And yet God has not spoken those words to us in any of those things, but in this Christ child, in Christ. Jesus, the glory of Israel, the light of the world, God says to you and to me, it's going to be okay. True consolation, brothers and sisters, is not the result of our working, but the result of our receiving, the one who is given to us and for us. Jesus is God's word of comfort to us so that if you are united to him by faith today, you may know for certain that everything is going to be okay. Jesus says to his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, there are a few things in life that I think shout more loudly that things are not okay than death. Would you agree? Death, the most fearsome enemy, Roars the loudest. Things are not okay. And yet Simeon faces death with peace, with poise. He says, Lord, you are dismissing your servant in peace because he has seen God's salvation. Peace is what we all long for. And here we're reminded that it may be found found only in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who took on flesh that he might bring peace to a sinful and broken world. We see in Christ a consolation. We see also a contradiction. Simeon speaks of this contradiction in verse 34. He says that this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. The comfort and the salvation that Jesus came to bring is, not, is one that is offered universally to the world, but is not accepted universally by the world. In fact, Jesus' life would very much be characterized by opposition. Opposition that would turn to hostility and hostility that would eventually turn to rejection and murder. He would come, as Isaiah tells us, as one despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There is a contradiction here, isn't there? That the very peace that we all long for, that we desire and we work for in so many ways, that peace that when it is offered, when it is met, is murdered. When it arrives, God takes on human flesh. How did humankind respond? They hang him on a tree. 
Why is this? Well, it's because Jesus, the light of the world, shines his light into the darkness that is men's hearts. And light exposes and reveals the very depths of our depravity. And so by nature, we seek darkness. We love darkness rather than light. And given the chance, we would snuff out the very light who would save us. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. I think this is especially important to remember this time of year when the Christmas message, if it's summarized at all, is summarized in a way in which no one can object to it. There's very little that is objectionable about a sweet baby glowing in a manger. But the reality is that this baby born in a manger was born for the purpose of the falling of many. He would become an offense. He would be opposed. He was opposed by religious leaders. He was opposed by the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees. He was opposed by Pilate and the Romans. He was even at times opposed by his own family. And I think most of us would like to think that, ah, if I had been there, I wouldn't have opposed Jesus. But then we read of Peter and we begin to wonder, don't we? Jesus was at one point or another rejected by everyone, including his own father. Jesus came not to affirm us, but to reveal the depth of our need. And it's only when we see in Christ the depth of God's love for us and the depth of our need for such love that we can only ever begin to appreciate the gift that we've been given in the Son of God. There is something irreducibly offensive about the gospel. We're reminded of it right here, that at the center of our faith stands a bloody cross and a crucified Lord of glory. And there's no getting around it. This has been a temptation of the church throughout history to try to smooth over, explain, or minimize the rough edges of Christianity, the center of which is the cross. But there's no amount of rebranding, no amount of PR that can soften the offensiveness of the gospel. While we should strive to not be offensive ourselves, We should also strive to let the offensiveness of the gospel do its work because it is precisely in the offense of Christ that we meet the salvation of Christ. Drawing on the apostle, I'm drawing on the prophet Isaiah, the apostle Peter would write about the stone that the builders rejected. He says that this stone has become the chief cornerstone. It's on the foundation of the offense of Christ that the church of Christ is built. For many, Jesus is a stumbling block, an offense, something that they cannot get over or accept. But for the church, the cross is our glory. The suffering Christ is our cornerstone. And it's on this foundation that we're built up. As many as will fall over the offense of Jesus, we must remember this that many more will rise. Did you see? 
that Jesus is not only appointed for the falling of many in Israel, but also for the rising. And so what many would regard as weak or silly, pathetic, ridiculous, and foolish, so many others would regard these same, this same Christ as strength and truth and hope and consolation and life itself. And this brings us really to the final significance of this child. And then we see a consolation. We see a contradiction that will be the, at the heart of his life. But finally, we see a cost. Mary's consecration of this child will come at great cost. This cost is highlighted for us in the Luke's emphasis in, on Mary and Joseph's fulfillment of the law. I'm sure you, you heard it, verse 22, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. They brought Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of Moses and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Five times in our account, Luke references the law. Mary and Joseph were faithful to God's law and they were faithful at great cost to themselves. We can't say for sure how many in Mary and Joseph's day would have made this pilgrimage and taken on the journey, taken on the expense, but scholars speculate that it would, was probably not many, a small fraction of those in Israel. But in Mary and Joseph, we see them taking on the cost Uh, The cost of fulfilling the law, the cost of the uh, sacrifices for purification, the cost of the uh, journey for purification, and the cost of the uh, tax for the redemption of the firstborn. But what I want you to see is that the greatest cost was not so much the external or the time or the financial The greatest cost to Mary was spiritual. Simeon highlights that for us, doesn't he? When he says that a sword will pierce through your own soul also. The salvation that this child came to bring is a salvation that will break Mary's heart. Her handing over her child to God was a symbol and a foreshadow of what would be required of her years later. Mary's road would be both painful and tremendously, tremendously difficult. The joy of bearing the Son of God, the joy of holding the Savior of the world in her arms would be attenuated by the reality that she would have to witness her child's unjust condemnation and brutal crucifixion. Mary would discover that her connection to this child would entail tremendous sorrow and unspeakable pain. And while this does refer to her particular suffering, her particular sorrow as the mother of the Christ who would be crucified, I don't think that this speaks only to her role as the mother of Jesus, but it speaks also to her role as a disciple of Jesus as well. 
This was the cross that Mary would have to bear, but Jesus promises that all who would follow after him must take up their cross. Jesus says, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here, Mary is reminded and we're reminded with her that the road to glory must pass through the cross. It's only through suffering that the crown of glory is received. Jesus calls those who would follow after him to take up their crosses. And God has promised that he would apportion to each one of us a cross. Why would he do that? Why would he give those who belong to him the many, many crosses that we have to bear? Well, the answer is that in our bearing of the cross, God is conforming us, shaping us, in greater and greater measure, day after day, shaping us, conforming us to the image of our elder brother, Christ. Jesus, who would travel the pathway of suffering before he would enter his glory, calls those who are united to him by faith to follow after him on that road. But at the end of the day, the greatest cost we see in this text is not the cost that Mary will have to pay, but the cost that Jesus would pay for Mary. It's there. It's there in the rituals. It's there in the law, the law of God, which is the word of God, given to Israel for a purpose. It's there in the ritual of purification that Mary would have to undergo. It's there in the ritual of sacrifice that Mary and Joseph would have to provide. Because in all of these realities, we're reminded with Israel that God will accept the substitute. God will purify his people. God will provide a life for a life And just as God would accept a lamb in the place of Israel's firstborn at that first Passover in the days of the Exodus, so too would he accept a sacrifice as a substitute for the life of every firstborn male thereafter. This was an expression of God's grace, an expression of God's provision. But what I want you to see is that for this child, this one child, There was no substitute. The child who was born to Mary was the substitute. Every sacrifice that spared every Israelite child pointed them and points us to this one child, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. Though the penalty for sin is death. The good news of the gospel is that God will accept the substitute. And the even better news of the gospel is that God will provide the very substitute that we need to stand in our place. And that substitute is not a lamb or a bull. It's not a thousand lambs or a thousand bulls, 
but the one lamb of God, this child, born to die, to pay the penalty, to bear the cost for your sins and for my sins. Jesus would come to the temple to bring an end to the temple. He comes under the law to bring an end to the law. The very one who Mary is consecrating to God will one day consecrate her to God with his own blood. It's remarkable. It's a remarkable scene. We don't know the extent to which Mary would have understood the significance of all of this, but Luke, in writing this gospel, wants us to see it. To, to observe the irony here that the purification that Mary really needed for bearing this child would be provided by the very child she bore. The sacrifice that Mary would make on his behalf pointed to the sacrifice that he would make on hers. What a gospel. What a savior. And for this reason, this Jesus has become the epicenter of the Christian faith and hope for God's people, for all generations. He did not come to show us the way. He came to be the way. As he would tell his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The reason we may take up our crosses with joy is because we have seen the salvation of our God and have apprehended and believed on this great cost that he was willing to pay on our behalf. Knowing this Christ and knowing this cost, we may know and experience true and unfading consolation. I think this consolation finds perhaps no better expression than in the opening question and answer of one of the great confessions of the Reformed faith, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. You've probably heard it. Some of you perhaps haven't memorized. It goes like this. What is your only comfort? We might say, what is your only consolation in life and in death? And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Body and soul, in life and in death. This is why we can live for Jesus. This is why we can take up our crosses daily. And this is also why we might die in peace. Brothers and sisters, when that day comes, and if Christ tarries, it most surely will come. We, like Simeon, may die not in fear or in doubt, but in peace. We may depart in peace, not because we are so righteous or because we have been so obedient. We may depart in peace because God has been so gracious. And by his grace, he has enabled us to see with the eyes of faith his salvation, that he has prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory for his people Israel. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for 
the gift of Christ, the one born to die that we might live. Father, we confess that we will never truly comprehend the depth of your love for us. Yet we ask that by your spirit you would enable us to apprehend something of your love that we might live in light of your love and in light of your grace and that we might follow after our faithful Savior in whose life our lives are hid. Would you enable us by your spirit to take up our crosses and follow after Christ faithfully that in bearing our crosses we might also receive the crown of glory which Christ has earned for uh, us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.